I'm glad that you're with us. You're a guest of ours. We're especially honored to have you with us this morning. Glad that you're here. It's good for me to be here this morning. It's good to be back home. I've been traveling around the southeast, it seems, the last uh, several weeks, and it has been great to be away, but it's really good to be back home. Last week, Martha and I were able to spend some time at the uh, summer celebration at Lipscomb University. The theme that this uh, year was the Holy Spirit. It was fantastic. It was so good. I came away from there so encouraged and challenged, a little bit humbled. Uh, we're really excited, and I wish we all could have been there together to hear some of those lessons. I hope in the next couple of weeks and months that uh, I'll be able to share some of that information with you. It was really, uh, really good stuff. Uh, today, we're back in our study of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. You know, there are some passages in Scripture. There are some chapters in the Bible in which something so significant happens that you really have to kind of slow down and pay extra special attention. Acts chapter 9 is one of those chapters. It is a monster chapter. Some really significant things take place in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. But before we get there, let me share a story with you. There was an old farmer who claimed that he could get his mule to do whatever he wanted it to do with nothing more than a soft whisper. No hits, no whips, no prods, no manhandling. He was telling his neighbor, all I have to do is speak softly to my mule and he'll do exactly what I want him to do. The neighbor said, I don't believe it. So off the pasture they go. The farmer and the neighbor, and there stands the mule. And the neighbor watches in amazement and then in horror as the old farmer bends down and picks up a two-by-four on the way out, about six feet long, walks up to the mule and just hits him over the head as hard as he can. Of course, the mule starts praying and yelling and jumping. When he finally calms down, the farmer says, Come here, mule. And the mule walks over to him. Back up, mule. And the mule backs up into the harness. And the farmer says, See there? All it takes is a soft whisper. <laughs> and he said, Soft whisper? You kidding? You almost killed that poor animal with that two by four. The farmer said, Oh, that? Well, that was just to get his attention. <laughs> And I'm not condoning or suggesting any kind of cruelty to animals today. All I'm saying is there are times when something or someone gets our attention. You look at scripture. God is really good at getting people's attention. Sometimes in some unorthodox ways. You got people's attention in burning bushes. You got people's attention in boats and crowded rooms, on threshing floors. In the ninth chapter of Acts. God is going to get someone's attention. <laughs> look through scripture, all through scripture, God sort of taps people on the shoulder and says, can I have your attention please? In the ninth chapter of Acts, God is going to ask for someone's attention. Let's take a look. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This man, Saul, is not too long from now going to have his name changed to Paul, and the remaining about three quarters of the New Testament is either going to be written by him or about him. But right now, his name is Saul. He 
He's a man heading to Damascus, and he is a man with a mission. He thinks his mission is honoring God, but God is about to tap him on the shoulder. God's about to get his attention. But before we get to the road outside of Damascus, understand exactly who it is we're talking about. The first couple snapshots that we have of Saul are brutal, and they're bloody. He looks more like a terrorist than he does the apostle of grace that you know he's been referred to as for a long time now. You mentioned the name Paul to Christians, and what comes to mind is this giant of the New Testament, right? This fantastic guy who, you know, the greatest missionary who ever lived, established churches everywhere he went, was such a force for Christianity, certainly a man who loved Jesus all of his life, right? Wrong. He did not love Jesus all of his life. Before Acts chapter 9, Paul hated the name of Jesus. And he hated the people who loved Jesus. In fact, several chapters later, while Paul is retelling his conversion experience from a guy named Agrippa, listen to how he describes his old self. It's in Acts chapter 26. I used to believe that I ought to do many horrible things to the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. I imprisoned many of the saints in Jerusalem as authorized by the high priest. And when they were condemned to death, I cast my vote against them. I used, to tor- I used torture to try to make Christians everywhere curse Christ. I was so violently opposed to them that I even hounded them in distant cities and foreign lands. And Paul would also write to his young friend Timothy and say this in 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, persecuted, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. It's almost hard for us to imagine that kind of hatred emanating from a guy like Paul, right? But that's who he was before he met Jesus. And it's important that we understand who he was before he met Jesus, because when we understand just how far he was from Jesus, I think we can better understand how much he can appreciate and understand the grace of God that he understands later on in his life. So let's see what happens in this terrorist once God gets his attention. Uh, Verse 3 of Acts 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. Funny thing happened to Saul on the way to Damascus. He meets Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting. Do you think maybe God got Saul's attention? Do you think Jesus had his attention at that point? A two by four up ahead could not have been more stunning for Saul, right? On the way to Damascus, he did not think he was going to meet Jesus. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't expecting to meet Jesus. 
But on the road to Damascus, Saul's attitude, his actions, really his whole life, is going to change. Because he needs Jesus. We used to sing an old praise and worship song. To come into the presence of the Lord is to be changed. You cannot come into his presence and remain the same. That's a biblical concept. To come into the presence of the Lord is to be changed. You cannot come into his presence and remain the same. Paul is about to be changed. His life is about to be very different. Let's take a look at a couple ways that, that Paul was changed, Saul. First, Saul's friends changed. Before the road to Damascus, Paul was a mover and a shaker in political circles, highly educated. You know, we talk about the disciples were blue collar people, not Saul. He was highly educated, highly respected by the ruling authorities. Saul had a reputation that was well known. He said, Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisees, the leading Jews, they respected that image. When he said Saul of Tarsus, the followers of Jesus, they feared that man. He had a reputation. As Saul journeys toward Damascus, he's got a lot of heavy hitters behind him. He has uh, authorization from the high priest himself. He's got kind of a band of brothers with him. His own entourage is traveling with him, all set for the same purpose of arresting and persecuting Christians. They're going to quell this Christian uprising. What happened to those friends? What happened to those companions who were traveling to Damascus with Saul? We don't know who they were. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We knew they were united with Saul in their mission. That they were there to help Saul arrest Christians. We knew we know that they traveled with Saul about five or six days, traveling to Damascus. But once they're in Damascus, once Saul has met Jesus, we don't know anything about those men. We don't know what becomes of those men. We don't know where they went. The Bible doesn't say. We do know that the people who helped Saul into the city of Damascus, the same people who helped Saul out of the city of Damascus. Saul left Jerusalem on his way to Damascus with a support group that he was very comfortable with that he was very much a part of. We met Jesus, all that changed. People came into his life that he didn't expect. And people did things that he never could have dreamed of, never could have imagined. Inside Damascus, Saul was taken to the house of a man named Judas on Straight Street. Not too far from Straight Street lived a man by the name of Ananias, a godly man, a follower of Jesus. God appeared to Ananias in a vision. He said, Ananias, I want you to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ananias says, no problem. There's a man there. He needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Ananias says, no problem. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Ananias says, Houston, we have a problem. Hey, pump the brakes here. I have heard about this guy, Saul of Tarsus. I, I know why he's here. I know what he's about. I don't want to go talk to Saul of Tarsus. Okay, that is that's a violent man. No thanks. Of course, God lets in and I know he's met Jesus. He's been changed. I want you to go. 
Ananias goes to Saul, restores Saul's sight. He baptizes this Christian killer into Jesus, and a lost sinner becomes a redeemed saint. You think about the man Ananias. Other than his interaction with Saul during his conversion, what else do you know about this man Ananias? I'll answer it. You don't know anything else about him. Because the Bible doesn't say anything else about Ananias apart from his, uh, his being with Saul during the conversion process. Saul goes to Damascus, spends some time with disciples there, spends some time with Ananias, and it appears that when he leaves Damascus, their paths never cross again. When Saul left Damascus, he when he returned to Jerusalem, he didn't return to the high priest who sent him to Damascus. He didn't return to those religious leaders who were hoping that he was successful in arresting and persecuting Christians. Instead, he returned to disciples. He returned to the followers of Jesus, who had the exact same initial uh, reaction as did Ananias. Wait a minute. No thanks. Saul of Tarsus, we know him. We know what he's about. It's a trick. He's trying to trick us. Can't trust him. Verse 27 of Acts chapter 9. That Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. We've already met Barnabas. They told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how at Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Saul comes back to Jerusalem as a Jesus believer, but he doesn't have a whole lot of friends in that arena in Jerusalem. God places Barnabas in his life just when he needed him the most. We'll see that Barnabas, unlike Ananias, is actually going to spend a lot of time with Saul once he becomes Paul. When you meet people and leave those old influences behind, I'm convinced that God will put people in your life to encourage you. Strengthen you, to support you. Saul walked away from those people who were committed to destroying Christianity, to persecuting Christians, and he walked straight to Ananias and Barnabas. Do you think that's a coincidence? You think maybe God had something to do with people that were showing up in Saul's life? To come into the presence of the Lord is to be changed. Cannot come into his presence and remain the same. Saul's friends changed, but also Saul's focus changed. When Saul left for Damascus, he was extremely confident, extremely determined, extremely focused. He was going to march into Damascus. He was going to round up anybody who believed in Jesus. And he was going to make sure that they were taken care of like they should be taken care of. If that meant prison, that meant prison. If that meant death, that was okay with Saul as well. But Saul didn't storm the gates of Damascus, did he? He was led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And Saul didn't kick down doors and drag out praying women and children, did he? Instead, he sat in darkness for three days obsessed and perplexed about the one that he'd met on the road. The very people that, that he went to Damascus to, to, to harass and to arrest, those very people, those followers of Jesus, 
They're the same ones who would later lower him down over the side of the city wall in a basket to escape the other Jews that he was sided with. You talk about irony in the story. Saul had changed. Saul used to put a whole lot of stock in who he was. He was a Roman citizen. Like I said, highly educated. Learned from Gamaliel, Ivy League, the whole way. Respected in social and political circles. In Philippians chapter 3, Saul, by this time is Paul, says this. You want to brag about being what the world sees as someone special? I could blow you out of the water. You want to brag about being an Israelite? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. You want to boast of being a Hebrew? You're looking at the Hebrew of all Hebrews. An expert in the law. A Pharisee. No one worked harder at it. Few did it better. As far as legalistic righteousness goes, I was the one by whom all others were measured. Saul says, that's who I was. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and my focus changed. And the question now is no longer who I am, but now the question becomes who I serve. In fact, right after Paul goes through that whole list of who I used to be and how important I used to see myself as, he says, let me tell you what I consider that stuff now. All my accolades, all my uh, all my uh, accomplishments, it's garbage. It means absolutely nothing now. You would say it's just rubbish. And then after he makes that proclamation, Paul would pin what I think are the best five words in all the scripture that he wrote. After he talks about this is who I was, I was somebody really important in, in other people's eyes. You know, I realized that stuff meant nothing. He talks about a change of focus. And he writes these words. I want to know Christ. You want to know what my focus is now? I want to know Christ. Saul's focus and change. The very thing that defined him as he went into the city of Damascus was not the thing that defined him as he left the city of Damascus. Because to come into the presence of the Lord is to be changed. Cannot come into his presence and remain the same. Well, his friends were changed, his focus was changed, and ultimately, his forever has changed. Toward the end of his life, he wrote to Timothy, whom he called the son that I love. He tells him that I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. Saul said, Paul writing here, it hadn't been easy. God said it wouldn't be easy, and he was right. It's been a race. It's been a fight. Looking back, I can tell you with complete confidence, it's been worth it. It has been worth it because I'm about to receive the prize that God has promised. He writes in Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I continue living, I'm going to be fruitful for Christ. If I die, I'm going to be with Christ. I win either way. You think Saul could have or would have made that statement before he met Jesus. I'm either going to serve Jesus or be with Jesus. Saul's forever changes 
in Acts chapter 9. But, but, <laughs> there's more to this story. And it's important that you understand the more to this story. Acts chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul. He retells it in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. There's more to the story. So let me tell you the whole story. Saul was then cycling to a home in Damascus. Ananias, after some prompting from God, uh, agrees to, to meet with Saul. Verse 17 of Acts 9. And Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I want to be sure that you understand the timeline about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. On the road to Damascus, Saul meets Jesus there on the road. On the road to Damascus, Saul understands who Jesus is. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. On the road to Damascus, Saul believes that Jesus is who he says he is. He recognizes him, recognizes him as the Son of God, as Lord. Saul spends three days praying and fasting. What do you think he was meditating on those three days? What do you think he was praying about for three days? Don't you know he had to be praying about his sin? And the mistakes that he'd made? How wrong he'd been? Don't you know he had to be praying so, so passionately and so repentantly? The life to be led. But when were Saul's sins forgiven? His sins weren't forgiven on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus. In fact, his sins weren't forgiven when he recognized Jesus as Lord. His sins weren't forgiven when he spent three days fasting and in prayer, aware of and acutely repentant of the sins that he committed. At what point were Saul's sins forgiven? Well, Acts chapter 9 tells us immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and we could see him. He got up and was baptized. And then as Paul retells his story in Acts chapter 22, uh, Paul quotes Ananias. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Saul's sins weren't forgiven when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul's sins weren't forgiven when he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Saul's sins weren't forgiven when he prayed a prayer. Saul's sins were forgiven when he was baptized into Christ. Let me preach what we practice for just a minute. We practice baptism for the remission of sin. We practice baptism for the remission of sin because Christ modeled it. We practice that because every time we read in Scripture of an individual going from lost to saved, it's baptism where that individual comes in contact with the cleansing blood of Jesus. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is baptism referred to as a symbol of anything. 
It is a participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saul understood that. That's why he later on would write Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul realized that new life when he participated in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through baptism. Okay, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about grace? Because this same guy says that we're saved by grace. That is right. I wholeheartedly agree with Paul. We are absolutely saved by grace. There is no other way. Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. Let me remind you of who Paul was before he meets Jesus. He, he uh, referred to himself as a blasphemer. He said, I was a persecutor. Remember, he said, I was a violent man. Saul knew better than anyone. <clears throat> I can't do enough good things. I can't do enough right things. To undo all the wrong things that I've done. There's no way I can be good enough to save myself. So he says, we're saved by grace through faith. And I'll say it several times, by the way. But understand, when faith takes hold in your life, when grace takes hold in your life, obedience follows. It just does. The, the deeper you fall in love with Jesus, the more obedient you're going to become. Not because it's a rule, not because he commands it. Because you love Jesus. You want to do what he said to do. Just like Paul, we'll never be obedient enough. We'll never be good enough to earn our way to heaven. I plan on being in heaven. But it's not because of anything that I've done. We're going to be in heaven because of the grace of God. Because of the love of Jesus. And because of Jesus' perfect performance on the earth and on the cross. That's why we'll be in heaven. Jesus himself said right before he left the earth, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I will command you. Surely, I'm with you to the very end of the age. I'm preaching what we practice because Jesus preached it. I'm preaching what we practice because Paul preached it. I'm preaching what we practice because Peter preached it. First Peter 3, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt for the body Pledge of good conscience for God saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter will say it's not about dirt under your fingernails. It's about your heart. God wants your heart. Baptism was never meant to be this huge stumbling block that somehow it's become. Remember back to the Old Testament. 
There's this really important guy by the name of Naaman. He has leprosy. He goes and visits Elisha, the prophet of God, because he thinks maybe Elisha might be able to help him. Elisha says, I can't help him. God can cleanse you. And Elisha gives him some very uh, straightforward uh, directions. Go dip seven times in the Jordan River. And if you remember, Naaman balked at that. Ooh, no, it's dirty. Why would I do a thing like that? Clean the rivers and that back home. Luckily, Naaman had a servant who had enough courage to tell his master, listen, if a man of God had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Why not wash and be clean? I'm convinced, and I'm convicted, that the teaching on baptism is too clear. It's too simple. And I know Jesus paid far too high a price me to take my heels in a long time ago I was baptized because I was convinced that's what Jesus wanted me to do and I loved Jesus enough to be obedient and every day since then I have thanked God for his amazing grace that has allowed me to call God my father call Jesus my savior Saul of Tarsus learned that truth in a city they called Damascus. And for the rest of his life, he would talk about, and he would preach about, and he would write about that amazing grace and plan of salvation. Yeah, God got his attention in a big way. Maybe this morning, God is trying to get your attention in a big way. Maybe this morning, God has your attention. Let me quote Ananias. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Wash away your sins. Call him on his name. This morning as a church family, if we can help you with anything that's going on in your life, we'd love to, love to meet with you, pray with you about anything that we'd love to minister with you about. There'll be some people here at the front of the auditorium if you need us there. Let's stand and sing.